Luke chapter 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If anyone comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered together as your people one in faith, Lord, bound together by your blood. Lord, would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Lord, would you encourage us, equip us, change us, God. We ask in your name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We're in a three-week series, or the final week of a three-week series called Steady. And the idea that we're submitting to you is in the midst of so much that's shifting in our world around us, there's three things, at least three, that you can count on. God is in control, the church will prevail, and Jesus will return. When we said God is in control, we looked at a story, one of my favorite, from the older side of the book, from Nahum in Second Kings chapter 5, about dipping into the river. A really good story about a small act, a humble act of faith, and how it activates God um, and his sovereignty in our lives. And then last week, the idea that the church will prevail, but we really didn't, we didn't have a sermon last Sunday. We had a panel and a video, and Susan and I left. Our hearts were full after that celebration as we celebrated 10 years as a, a faith family, 10 years of being a church. And by no means have we said or are we saying or would we ever say that our church will prevail. We don't know. We must be humble and hungry. We must be on point and on purpose. We need to lay aside the sin and things that so easily entangle us and run the race before us. We need to plant and we need to water, but it's God that causes the growth. And so the church will prevail. We just don't know about our church, but it's been a good 10 years. Today, we're looking at the third idea in the steady series is that Jesus will return. I said this in our first service that uh, for some of you, you're probably thinking, oh, great. Jesus, the second coming. I I, I was kind of liking my church. You know, I'm kind of new here. I invited somebody to be with me today. The the preacher's really kind of cute, even though he's a little wrinkled. And, and now he's going to get weird on me and preach about the second coming of Jesus. And can I just say today, I hope you hear this. I hope you leave with this today. Don't get weird about this. And don't follow any weirdos. But it gets weird because people make phony, fake predictions about the end of times. It gets weird because uh, fear Uh, pervades us when we think about the end of the world and the great judgment and all of that. I mean, think about it. The apocalypse and Armageddon and the Antichrist and the tribulation, earthquakes, floods, fires, tornadoes, famine, pestilence, wars and rumors of wars and all that. And it can just get easy for this to, to be weird. But hear me now. Think about uh, the end of the world and think about the human condition that we, well, we're, we're all human, right? And think about several years ago. Do you remember in 1999? Where were y'all in 1999? And we were all afraid of the year 2000, okay? We were afraid, why? Because of, say it with me, because of 
Y2K. And Y2K, some of you have to kind of learn this historically, but we, people were freaking out. I, I knew some smart people that were freaking out. And the idea was that when, night, when, the, you know, when the zero turned to 2000, uh, the computers and the banking system and the financial industries and all would go berserk and come to a crash because of double zeros. And I remember thinking, just on a human standpoint, I remember thinking, don't we have like some smart, nerdy IT guy that can kind of come go into a central room and fix this for us so we won't be freaking out about Y2K? But people, more people than we'd like to admit, stockpiled weapons and valuables and essentials to get ready for the end of the world. A few years later, there was the Mayan calendar. I had no idea so many Americans in modern America were intrigued by Mayan culture and their calendar. And the, I think the date was December 22nd, 2012. The world would end. Good news. Neither came true. We're here. We're here today. But it's so easy to get weirded out by it, to follow phony fake prophets, to... To, to buy into things that fan our fear. Now, I will say this, uh, 2 Timothy 3.1, put it this way, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Recently, I got to sit down with someone who's bright and scholarly. They really know their stuff. They're not cuckoo over Cocoa Puffs at all. You couldn't accuse them of this, but this man is not going to predict anything, but he studies a prophecy studies end times and is looking at Israel and the sign of the times and considering microchips and satellites and things that are happening with climate forecast and all this, he puts it together and thinks that we could be living in our last decade. That didn't freak me out, but hear me now. This, I think all of us, the 930, you could just sense the uh, uh, pronounced agreement that we would look at that and go, man, the times can be so dark. It can be so hard. I remember Martha Pennybaker last week, one of our older members, one of our OG members. She was here from the beginning of Fondren Church, and she said on the video last week about her hope and future for our church. And it just, she choked back emotion just thinking about how dark the world is getting. And if you keep reading in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, you'll see a bunch of just a laundry list, a litany of things. And if you read it and you're like me, you see that and go, man, that is so characteristic of our day. Could it be the end of time? But hear me for a second. Don't miss this. Jesus said what about predicting the end of times? Nobody is going to know. So if somebody claims that they know, tell them they don't know. I want to say to you, you got a mind of your own. You're going to do what you want to do, but go with Jesus. Go with the only person in the history of the world who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. He's right every time. And he said that no one's going to know when it ends. But we look at the world and we have to wonder, don't we? Here's what, an idea that I want to leave you with today. I'm, I'm not done preaching, but I want to put it up here and then leave you with it at the end only by thinking wisely about the future can we live well in the present have you ever heard this saying if you're uh, finish it for me if you will if you're too heavenly minded you'll be no you'll be no earthly good that's not a bible verse by the way it's not in there uh but it could be true only though, only if you look at the strange teachings or the, the weird ways about it all. But this, I submit to you, is true only thinking wisely about the future. Only then can we live well in the present. Now, hear me. 
just I want to drop some important facts. The second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the whole Bible. There are 27 New Testament books, and in 23 of them, the second coming, the end of the world, is addressed. There are 260 chapters of the New Testament, uh, some 318 references. If you break down the math, that's about one in almost every 12 verses has something to do with Christ returning again. It's important only by thinking wisely. God knew that. The writers of Scripture knew that. Only by thinking wisely about the future can we live well in the present. Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. And in there, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. He, don't, he didn't just hate Christmas. He, he despised the poor and the needy. He was greedy. He was miserly. He was just a foul mood guy until he was visited by ghosts. Three ghosts in particular. And by the way, some of you are like, Christmas Carol, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I haven't, I, look, it's been out 180 years. If you hadn't seen it, you're not going to see it. I'm not ruining it. No, no spoiler alert here. But he, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of, y'all know this, right? The ghost of the past, the present, and the future. And all of them have an impact on his life. But the one that transformed him was the ghost of the future. Only by thinking wisely about the future can we live well in the present. There's a documentary called Free Solo. I don't know if, if you have, uh, have seen that, but Free Solo is about a man who is kind of insane in the membrane. He's definitely not normal, and he scales some of the highest peaks. He climbs some of the most dangerous, formidable rock formations in all the world without, get this, without any ropes or harnesses. And I watched that not long ago, Free Solo. Check it out. I, I recommend it. Uh, but I, I remember when I was watching that not long ago, and I just couldn't take it. And I paused the documentary and went to the internet and just Googled, is he still alive? And I found out, yeah, he's living. And then I went back and I enjoyed it, the documentary, in su such a more calm state. Only by thinking it helps to know the future, doesn't it? It helps to cast an eye and to have some knowledge about the future so that we can live better uh, in the present. Daniel Wagner read for us Luke chapter 12. I want to give you a homework assignment to read the rest of Luke chapter 12. We're just going to touch on it today. But in there, Jesus gives, don't worry, Emmy, about the entire verse of, of, on the screen. We'll just do the points here. But Jesus gives four analogies that were familiar in his day. One of them is this. He says to dress, be dressed for action. Now, the English doesn't do it justice in the Greek New Testament. It says to gird up your loins. The verb is present um, it's interactive and it's, it gives the idea of an ongoing process that you would gird your loins. Now, in the first century, I've been waiting all week to say this at church. In the first century, no one wore pants. They wore tunics. Men and women way back then wore tunics. These were garments that went down just below their knees. I said this at 930, but men, are, are you glad? Anybody like me back in the day when they made shorts, it was like cool to go from the 1970s where they came up to here, the shorts, where you'd take them to your, right at your knees or below. Like I have these bird legs. And I was just so glad when long shorts uh, became in. But tunics were long and unlike basketball shorts of our more modern day, they were flowing. And so this picture is very picturesque, very colorful that Jesus gives us. He says to, to gird up your loins. He's saying that it, when a, before a man in particular would run or jump or work or climb, he would need to take the loose flowing outer garment and put it, untuck it uh, under his belt to be ready. It's an image of readiness and it's an image of 
action. And the second thing Jesus says beyond just being dressed for action, he says, keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. Any campers in the room, any outdoors, I'm not talking about glamping. I'm talking, not, not talking about glamorous stuff. I'm talking about camping where you do the hard, rugged stuff in God's beautiful green earth and you have uh, you have a lantern, you have lights. Of course, you got your iPhone, but pretend, pretend we don't. But you got your lantern, and you don't, douse, you don't douse out the lantern until you feel like you're safe and secure. It kind of freaks me out about camping. Every time we go somewhere exotic, I, I usually do a couple of a year with friends, and we go, we end up in some city in an REI, and we try not to spend uh, money. And Susan can tell you, I, I spend too much there. But you get all the last-minute stuff. And they're always reminding me to get the bear bags. Is that what they're called? You get the bear bags. And you put your food, anything that's going to smell, any aroma, you put it in the little bag. And then you put it at the top of a tree. So when the bears come in while, while you're sleeping, uh, they won't smell the food or won't act, be able to access the food. And they'll just the, move on. And you, when you camp, you keep the lights on until you feel good but if you sense that someone or something maybe Jason from Halloween or whatever is going to come through and you keep the lamp burning and you have someone who stays watch and Jesus again another metaphor familiar for the people in our in their day to stay at it stay ready the image of readiness and action of wakefulness and too many of us are casual and cavalier and apathetic too many of us are asleep at the will, and Jesus is saying, be spiritually alive and attuned to what's happening around you. Be ready. Two metaphors here that Jesus gives. One has to do with an expected guest, being ready for an expected guest, and one for an unwelcomed intruder. I like it when you have an expected guest. You like that? You throw the, the, all that, you run around and clean your house because you want everybody to think your house is clean. You got that closet where everything goes at the last minute. And you throw everything in there because you want to be ready for the guest that, that comes. Be ready. There's an unexpected guest. There's an intruder, a thief. And have you noticed you don't get a notification when a thief comes over? Like DoorDash tells you when they're coming. But, they, you know, you don't look at your smartphone. It says, hey, a thief will be arriving in 20 minutes to your house. It's an unwanted intruder, but in both ways, we're called to be ready. Y'all played musical chairs ever? Anytime, y'all played anytime recent, recently? I think, I think we should. I wanna, anybody want to play musical chairs after church? I'm, I'm available. We've got one right there. Need some more. But you just need, all you need is a few people, and you need one less chair than you have people, and then you need some music. And you know how you play, you put them in a circle and you walk around and when the music stops, you scramble for a seat. Usually there's pushing and shoving, a lack of fruit of the spirit. And you're, you want to be in a seat, you don't want to be the one that's left standing to be the loser. And you move about. You're ready and certainly you're ready for action. And here's the thing about the game, the whole premise of the game is built on this idea, hear me now, that the music will stop. The music will stop. Hear me today you will die it will end will you be ready life is like a vapor it appears for a little while and then it, then it vanishes imagine me taking some sort of aerosol can and just spraying in front in the air right here and that's a picture of our lives how brief it is the brevity of life 
and the certainty of death the scripture teaches. Are you ready for that? Are you aware of that? Are you awakened to it? Do you appreciate it? I'm going to show you a picture. Let's call him Jaws. I was going to run to Walmart and put a live one on the stage. They gave me a three-day guarantee that he would live for three days. Um, let's call him Jaws. Let me ask you, you see Jaws here. Do you think Jaws is happy? Is he satisfied? I mean, it's just a goldfish in a bowl, a very short life, and here he is. I would suspect, opinions could vary, but I don't know if we have any experts on goldfish brains. When Albert Einstein died, they put his brain in a jar of formaldehyde, and they studied it at somewhere in Princeton right now. Goldfish brains, not much to them. But I, I imagine that this is all Jaws knows. So you could argue reasonably that he's fairly satisfied because he just doesn't know. Like he's limited to his life in the bowl. It's all he knows. But let's say that we show our pet goldfish jaws this picture. Would he then be as satisfied? You see, he doesn't know about life beyond his bowl. His bowl is all he knows. But there's something bigger and bolder and more colorful that awaits, that could await him. And this is, very likely, could be a picture of us that we only know a little bit now. Look at what the scripture says. Some of you know it. It's actually just beautiful poetry. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Just look at verse 9, the first part. It's easy, and I think Christians do this, it's easy to look at that and go, well, you know, no eye, no ear, no mind, so we're not, we're not, a, we're not really going to be able to know about eternal life, about heaven, so don't even worry about it. YOLO, you only live once. So put your head down. And move forward in this life. And maybe acquiesce a little bit about what could be. But look at verse 10. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. Here's my prayer for you today. That your journey would be one where you would let the spirit of God teach you. That you would let him inflame your imagination and open up your mind. As it says in 2 Peter 1, I've been preaching a lot lately. Add to your faith knowledge. That you would let the Spirit of God teach you about eternity. That you would think more and more about what awaits. And so I want to I pull back from Luke 12 for a moment and look at the Bible and what it says. Because we're so victimized by bad ideas. I, I said this at the earlier service. But uh, as Americans, I'm speaking with a broad brush here. Painting with a broad brush. As Americans, we are generally affluent and comfortable, and so we don't think about heaven a lot. Anybody agree with me? Anybody disagree? Anybody want to stand up and argue with me now? We don't think about heaven a lot. But the first century Christians, they lived under constant threat. They were fed to wild animals. They were burned at the stake. They were put in vats of oil and used as torches at Nero's garden parties. They sang a lot about heaven, about the glorious hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of the first century, a lot of it was about heaven and what awaits because of their pain, because of their suffering. 
harken back to a dark time in our nation's history. I think of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ who talked about heaven, who sang about heaven, who lived in times of slavery and oppression. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. What's on the other side of the Jordan? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Oh, to think about it. Oh, to think about heaven and what it can be like. I want to give you some ideas of what the Bible says, some truths about what the Bible says heaven is like. And it says this. One thing I want to submit to you today is this, that heaven is a place of love and relationships. It's a place of love. It's a place of relationships. One of the most frequent questions I get asked as a pastor is, will we recognize people in heaven? Can I tell you? Absolutely you will. I think of Matthew 17 and Jesus and the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. I think about how Elijah and Moses appeared to them. You see, they had never met them. They had never looked at their Facebook profile or their Instagram post, reel, or story. They didn't know about Elijah or Moses per se, but when they met them, they knew who they were. Now, Jesus, of course, is God and omniscient, so put him to the side for a second. The disciples were like, well, they recognized him, and you and I will recognize people. Jesus said, to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. And we often think about the this day, like heaven, we get ushered in immediately. And we oftentimes think about paradise. Oh yeah, paradise. But th- maybe the most beautiful part of that of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross is that you will be with me. It's a place, but ultimately it's a person. It's a person who created and who redeemed and sustains and will glorify. Scholars talk about, they talk about our justification. They talk about our sanctification. And they talk about our glorification. Justified is when you accept Jesus as your Savior and he has taken your sin. Sanctification is a process that can be arduous and lengthy and uh, painful. But it's a process of cleansing. A process of, of, of us growing, of maturing. It's a process of you not being the same person today that you were a year, year ago. Or same person you won't be a year from now than you are today. You would grow. You would be sanctified. And then there's glorification. And that's when every wrong is corrected. When things are made new. And heaven will be a place of love and relationships. And I just want to say it. My heart rejoices with some of you who've lost And I think about the reunions that you will have, that I will one day have. And man, it is joy to think about. Not only is heaven a place of love and relationships, it's a place of intellectual growth and discovery. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. I told y'all it talks a lot about eternity Raises up in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Emmy, if you would leave that up. His kindness, it's his grace. Only by his grace. This is, these are the verses, some of you know, it's the verses right before the famous verses that say, for we are saved only by grace are we saved through faith. It's not a result of our works that none of us would be able to boast. But here, by the way, it talks about the coming ages. Here's the thing that's so hard for us. I live in the same world that you do. And what's so hard for us is that we live in the middle. 
Every story has a beginning, has a middle, and has an ending. And we're living in the middle. And the middle really is the hardest part. But there's a coming age, and it says this, that he might show. And if you study that word, it's progressive. It's a process. Some of us, I think, erroneously think, some of you may want to debate me later on this, but when we get to heaven, we're just going to know everything. You ever thought that? We're just going to know everything. And can I say you're not because you're not God? You'll know a lot, and we'll have a keen mind and intellect. We will. It'll be very enlivened. It'll be way better than it is now, but you're not going to know everything. God will show and slowly, progressively show us more and more. I can't wait to get to heaven. I want to take a leadership class with Moses. I want to take a preaching class with Billy Graham and ask God why he didn't give me what he gave BG. I want to, man, I want to hang out with Rosa Parks and ask her how she got the courage on that bus. I want to talk to Emmett Till's mom and ask her how she got the wisdom and courage to open the casket of her 14-year-old boy to change the world. I'm telling you all, you better read your Bible because you're going to meet a guy named Obadiah and he's going to ask you if you read his book. All right? So you better read his book. But we are going to learn, and it's going to be a place of intellectual growth and discovery. And that is a good thing. You see, we're bored by heaven because we think it's some just eternal tedium where we're floating on the clouds and playing the harp and, and singing along. Nothing wrong with singing. We're going to do a lot of singing in heaven, and Lauren's probably going to have a big part of it. But, hey, we look, that's going to happen, but there's discovery and learning as well. It's a place of love and relationships, a place of discovery and learning, intellectual growth and discovery, and it's a place of rewards. I want, I want, I want, I want to preach this today. It's my job to preach this and not to make everybody just feel good all the time, but this could be a little bit vexing, a little bit uh, troubling, a little bit unsettling for you. But look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will what? He will reward each person according to what they have done. Don't cheapen God's grace. Man, I can't do it. We're about to be married 25 years. I can't do it with her. And you can't do it with God. I can't do it with God. Don't cheapen his grace. He has saved you, all of us, by his grace, only by his grace. But when you know that you've been forgiven, what did Jesus teach? He who loves much, he, knows, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. And when you know you've been forgiven, when you have tasted God's grace and seen that it is good and transformative, you will want to live for him. And if that desire is not there, would you please talk to a pastor today? Talk to someone today. But a preaching legend, Bob Russell, gives a great analogy here. He says that, think about it, uh, guys. Think about it like a sports team. We have the Bellhaven baseball team here, pretty obvious. These handsome gentlemen are down front. Most of them are handsome. And, uh, but you guys know you're all on the team. Is that right, coach? Everybody's on the team. Uh, can anybody not, maybe not going to be on the team? Anybody you're thinking about cutting or two or three? Okay, we'll tell you. Yeah. Y'all come for prayer at the end of the service. But these guys are all on the team. But at the end of the season, coach is going to have probably an awards banquet. And he's going to award the guys who've performed well. I, I've been on a lot of teams. I've never received a, an athletic award. I've been there, and I'm just thrilled to be there. But I've never, they've never called me out and said, here is a great accomplishment. Sports are so political, by the way. Have you noticed, like, playing time? Like, they're so political. They always go with the guys that can run and throw and catch and that are fast and stuff and just so political. But anyway, uh, they're, they're, everybody's on the team. So this isn't are you on the team. By God's grace, and the only way you're on the team is his grace. 
But there will be rewards. There will be an award banquet. Look what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. It says their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a what? A reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through flames. I have a friend who every day goes to work, does an honest job. And then he leaves. And he goes to a village to love and care for his wife who's been suffering for many years with dementia. And I believe my friend will receive greater rewards than all the husbands in the room who have a healthy wife but take them for granted. And some of you judge the preacher's for talking about money and giving. But here's what I want to say to you today. I believe there's special reward for people who do what God says and give of the first fruit of their labor, of what they have coming in. They give that, not the leftovers, but they say, God, I want to do things your way. Isn't it funny how we ask, we run to God when we don't get a job promotion or get the job we want. We ask God to help us financially, but we, we've done nothing to be obedient about what he says with money. Does that strike you as odd, anybody? Help me, Lord, help me, Lord. But you've disregarded everything he said about money or one of the most important things, to be obedient in giving. And I believe the people in this house and watching from home and throughout all eternity who follow Jesus into generosity, who give 10 to 15% or more to the work of the kingdom will be rewarded in heaven. I don't want you to miss that opportunity. Be a part of that. And for those of you who've endured, who've gone through great suffering and loss, but you've remained faithful and you are holding on to your faith and you're using your pain as a testimony to the goodness of Jesus and the Father of all mercy and the God of all comfort who's comforted you, you are comforting one another with that. I believe you will be rewarded immensely in eternity. It's a place of love and relationships. It's a place of intellectual growth and discovery. It's a place of reward. It's also a place with fascinating worlds to explore. Jesus said this. It's kind of a funeral verse, relegated to funerals. But Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The disciples, they don't know what's about to hit them. He said, I'm going to prepare a place. And look, don't you like it when somebody has you over and they prepare a place for you at their table? Especially if they have the gift of, they know you're coming and they, they have the gift of, and they prepare for you. Imagine God preparing for us. Like that blows me away. Some of you have, you've, you've hosted us and we've been blown away with your hospitality and how you prepare to play. But imagine God preparing a place. We have friends that live nearby in a, in a, in a castle and they're renting it. And if someone comes and wants to buy the castle for like $2 million, they got to get out of the castle. But uh, we've driven by a couple of times and I've stopped a few times. I've offered hints. I've texted them late at night. I want to get in the castle. I want to explore the castle. They've never let me in. They've talked to me on the front steps. And, but man, I, I want to I go into the mansion. I want to be in the castle. I want to go room to room and see what it's like. You know, scientists tell us that this world is way bigger than we ever thought. Eternity, your mind can't even conceive how long it is. And we will have eternity to explore what is bigger 
and bolder than we ever dreamed or imagined. And I've already been telling God, I want to go everywhere. You know that whole YOLO, you only live once? Like, like live life fully and suck all the marrow out of life, this short life that you have. But this, you, there's eternity. And what we miss here will be magnified and we'll make it up there in ways that we never dreamed. The, we think about the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, the Pacific Ocean, the Great Barrier Reef, Niagara Falls, all these things. That's just a sneak peek into what heaven will be like. And it will be a place with fascinating worlds to explore. It will also, and I challenge you on this, according to what the Bible teaches, is that heaven is a place of productivity and accomplishment. Revelation 2 Revelation 7, Revelation 22, all says that we will be serving in heaven. Now, some of you think it's a great retirement village. Some of you think we'll just be floating along or riding on a hammock and sipping a a pina colada, virgin pina colada uh, through eternity. But listen, the Bible does describe heaven as a place of rest. And for those of you who are weary today, heaven is a place of rest. Hang on and have hope. It is a place of rest for sure. Scripture teaches it. But it's a place of productivity and accomplishment. We will serve. We will make decisions. Look at what it says. Kind of a strange passage to pull out at you today. But 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Some of us think that we will become angels. Anybody believe that? That's, that's not like, let me just say to you in love, you're never going to be an angel. I want to look at some of you that I know. You'll never be an angel. You're not an angel right now. You will never be an angel. But look, we're going to be judging angels. We're going to be governing and serving and making important decisions. We will do work. Now, there's no death in heaven, so there's probably not going to be funeral directors. There's no decay, so there's probably not going to be dentists. I talked to a dentist earlier. They're, so, they're like, hey, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I got, I got a few more years. I don't want to look in people's mouths anymore. So there's probably not some of that, but we will work. And if this, you may struggle with this. If your work is not, if it's boring and not thrilling and satisfying and fulfilling, if you're not thriving in your work, you're like, Ugh. but look, God will, you will put your hand on the plow and you will have a task that will be thrilling and you will govern and rule and serve. And can I tell you, it won't be boring. Let me say this, retire right now. Young people, go, don't, don't ever get a job, just retire, live off somebody just have a perpetual vacation. You would like that for two weeks, two, two months, maybe two years. But God created you with relational needs and needs of ambition. And you will want to produce and serve. And we will continue that like never before. Another thing as we close is that heaven is a place of joy and laughter. Very familiar verse. Jesus taught this in Matthew 25. He talked about sheep and goats. He talked about the end of times. This is in the teaching where he says that he has visited us. Where are you, Jesus? He's in the poor. He's in the naked. He's in the suffering. He's in, he's in prison. This is where Jesus says, and as we do it to the least of these, we do it to him. Y'all, we need to serve. We need to give our lives away. And in that same passage, he says, in the middle of a parable, he says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It's like I just read that verse for the first time this week. We get to share in his happiness. It will be a place of joy and laughter. Can I just say real quick to you, some of y'all need to start practicing. Some of you, it's grim. 
and being around you is grim, would you, would, you, would, you, would you learn the celebration of joy? Would you learn the discipline of joy? Would you learn to put facts and faith ahead of your feelings and see what follows? Would you, would you practice that? Would you learn that? Here's what Romans says. Romans says, we groan. Romans says, we rejoice. And can I tell you, man, I groan and I rejoice. In fact, Scripture says in Romans 8, creation groans. We're having arguments and debates about climate change and how uh, crazy it is. And there's, a, there's some folks really wanting to speed this up. I'm not here to preach on that. I'm going to stay in my lane. But look, uh, the creation groans. We can all agree on that. What the Bible said so long ago, we see it that creation itself groans because we're living in the middle. This life is not the way it is intended to be. We groan, but we rejoice. And can I tell you from experience and from pastoring some of you, from reading biographies in my office of dead people who are already gone and they're in heaven, and they're in the land of the living. We're in the land of the dying. But the deepest joy are people that know that they can rejoice while they groan. And that is the truth. But heaven will be a place of happiness. And when the biblical writers, I'm about to stop preaching, when the biblical writers would tell us what heaven was like, I'm thinking maybe they ran out. They ran out and they just had to describe what heaven is not like. And I want to close as the team begins to come up. I want to close with this idea of what heaven is not like. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Come on now, bring it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Can I just quickly break that down? There will be, it'll be arthritis free and Advil free. We will be free of pharmaceutical commercials that tell us about all those painful side effects that make me almost want to throw up every time the commercial comes up. We'll be free of that. My son just graduated college. When he began college some four uh, years ago, one of his brand new friends who went to Germantown High School had an ATV accident outside of college, and it fell back on him, and his spinal cord was severely damaged. And they saved his life. They airlifted him right here. And the first time I went to see him, and I didn't introduce myself as Robert Green, Pastor Foniger. I said, I'm Robert Green, R.J. Green's dad. And the only muscles he could move was his face, and he smiled. And he said, I love your son. Thomas won't have to park in handicap parking. Thomas won't need a wheelchair. Thomas is going to be running around. There will be no tear-stained divorce papers. There will be no anxious waiting rooms. Doctors, y'all are great. I love you. But your job will be done. I met with an oncologist. Just... I have a friend that's in a college. Like, his job will be done, praise God. There'll be no motionless ultrasounds or tiny caskets. I've had to do some of those funerals, man. And that won't be there. Jesus said in John 17, he prayed this prayer. And he said in John 73, he said, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you and know me. 
So, you know, knowledge is kind of a funny thing. And some of you think you know God, but you don't. So here we go. The end of Luke 12, you're going to read it, your homework assignment. At the end of it, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. What? That's not, I don't want that part of Jesus. I want the other Jesus. Now, Jesus is a peacemaker. He says, blessed are those who make peace. I hope you're bringing peace to this world that needs it. But hold on a second. It may be difficult to understand, but it shouldn't be. Jesus said, I'm, I'm bringing a sword. I, I'm going to make you choose. And you and I need to choose. Have you made a choice? Have you made the choice? Do you know him? Because there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. I, philosophers talk about descriptive knowledge versus acquaintance knowledge. The descriptive knowledge is this an example. Uh, I don't know much about Syracuse. I got a friend, Jonathan Santucci, that's from Syracuse. He told me some stuff about Syracuse. He talks funny. He's told me stuff about Syracuse. I don't know much about it, but I can tell you what Jonathan told me. I could just describe it, but I don't know about it. Let me show you a picture. This is the skating ring. That This is my skating ring. I learned to skate. I learned to do the hokey pokey. I learned to get some swag and skate across during couple skates. And pick a girl, skate around with her. I kiss one or two of them. I don't know, I could tell you a little bit about Syracuse, but I could tell you a lot about that skating rink. Like I looked at it this, this week, man, nostalgia flooded me. I can smell that. I can tell you story. The good ones owned it. I thought I was so cool when I was growing up because the good ones were friends with my parents and I would go out to Clayton Village right outside of Starwell and I would skate and I knew the owner. If I ever got in trouble and I did, I could just talk to the good ones because they own the place. Man, I, I know. I don't just know about it. Like, I'm an acquaintance with that skating ring. Do you know him? In closing, I just want to sneak this in because I want to be a teacher, not just a preacher. But in teaching, I want to say this. You know, some of us, uh, especially the modern mind, may be troubled with some of this master-servant stuff. Anybody kind of troubled by that? Like slaves and servants. And it's hard to stomach that. And here's what's great. You need to know this. Jesus lived in a real time, in a real place, in a real culture, and he transcended. And if you'll read this later, and you're going to, in Luke 12, he says, the, the master, you know, they prepared, they prepared, and they were ready for him, and he came back for the wedding, because they didn't know how weddings would last, how uh, long they would last back then. Jesus comes back, they could last a day, they could last a week, you better be ready. And he comes back, but the master comes back, the servants were ready for him, they had the table set, everything was clean, nice. And you know what, in Jesus' story, because everybody's created in the image of God and everybody's equal and every life matters. Jesus didn't have the master sit down and the servants wait on him. Jesus had the master wait on the servants. Jesus said, I didn't come to this world to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Would you stand? We are going to conclude with communion the Lord's Supper this do in remembrance of me we're going to kick it back a little bit uh, more of the way we used to do it we're not going to dunk but we want to ask you to come forward there are three stations down front you guys in this section would come here this side to here this side to here and in the balcony you see a station and our buddy Jake up there for every follower of Jesus, would you come to the table? Follow the person in front of you. There'll be a lot of movement, and that's a good thing. Don't leave. But the cup, you'll see, you'll take one, and there's 
juice representing the blood of Jesus. And below that is another cup represents the body of Christ. This is an act of worship. It's communal. It's us being a faith family together saying, we believe, we follow you. Jesus, thank you for living in servanthood and calling us to serve. And your body was broken and your blood was shed for us as an act of worship. This humbles us and it refines us and it calls us to be people who know that we need a Savior. God, would you bless this act of worship? May we bring to mind what is sacred. May we push aside distractions and traffic and lunch and just be in this moment. Receive our worship. Lord, thank you. We do this in remembrance of you.